I would like you to find Hebrews 8, and there are some notes in the bulletin. You can follow along with what we're going to talk about this morning. Hebrews 8 is our passage. We are well past the debates of Hebrews 6, and we are past the technicality and the really, really tight argument of Hebrews 7, and our passage is Hebrews 8. Hebrews 8 fits with everything else we've seen in the book of Hebrews over these summer weeks. Uh, it has a, a twofold purpose, Hebrews 8 and the book itself. Negatively, the book of Hebrews is written to warn Christians about the danger of falling away. Do not stop following Jesus. The consequences will be terrible. There's a warning that runs all the way through this book. There's also a positive encouragement. And so positively, Hebrews was written to encourage Christians to persevere in the faith. Keep following Jesus. Don't stop. Don't give up. Don't turn back. Don't deviate off this path. Keep following after Jesus. Don't stop. Keep pressing on. And we've seen both of those things so far. We've seen warnings sprinkled in as we've worked our way from Hebrews 1 up through 7. We've also seen what you could just call a truckload of encouragement. Right? The warnings have been there, but the encouragement is just constant. Keep following after Jesus. What I mean by that is Hebrews 1 to 7, the ground that we've covered so far, it's one long sustained argument. And the argument is Jesus in his greatness and his glory is unrivaled. It's exactly what we just sang about. There is no one like Jesus. There is no one better than Jesus. There is no one greater than Jesus. He is unique. He is unrivaled. He is unmatched. He is the greatest. And you can trace this all the way through this first part of the book of Hebrews. It starts off at the very beginning of the book saying Jesus is God himself. He's fully and truly and really God. He's not a creation of God. He is God. And then Hebrews comes right alongside that and says he's also human. Jesus took on human flesh. He identified with us. He lived among us. He became one of us so that he could die for us. Truly God, truly human, greater than the angels. That's Hebrews 1. There's no angels that, that can match him or rival him or stand in his presence. He made all of those beings and they were made to praise Jesus. His relationship with the Father is different than the Father's relationship with the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Aaron. He's better than Levi. He's better than Melchizedek, right? All these Old Testament heroes get lined up and just knocked down one after the other. Jesus is greater than all of these people. We saw a few weeks ago, Jesus is an anchor for our soul. What great hope, right? You're adrift on this sea, tossed about to and fro, but you have an anchor that keeps your soul safe insecure, and that anchor is Jesus. And so the author of Hebrews have been saying to us, Jesus is the greatest. His greatness, his glory, his majesty, his beauty, his power, all of it is unmatched, unrivaled, unequaled. And then you come to Hebrews 8. Hebrews 8, in the first two verses, it summarizes everything you've seen so far. And I love Hebrews 8, verse 1 and 2. Look what it says. The point of in what we are saying is this. Don't you like it when people communicate clearly? Right? There's been some stuff in Hebrews that's hard to wade through, right? I mean, you're sorting through Melchizedek and this issue of falling away and apostasy and your mind's kind of spinning. And it's like he just hits the pause button and says, this is the point. 
This is why I'm telling you all the things I'm telling you. Here's the point. We have such a high priest. This one that we've been talking about. This is not hypothetical. We have him. This one who is truly God, truly human, greater than the angels, greater than Aaron, Levi, Melchizedek, Moses, all the rest of them. This anchor for our souls. We actually have him. Here's the point. We have such a high priest. And he's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. We have the high priest that we actually need. Keep following. Don't turn back. Don't stop following him. Keep following after Jesus. Right? Hebrews 8 picks up this argument, and the big idea is really, really simple. Jesus, our great high priest, has established a new and a better covenant. Jesus, this great high priest, the one we have, the one that the book has been building up to, here's the point. We have this high priest. Chapter 8 adds on to this argument and says he has established a new and a better covenant. Now we're going to read the text, but I want to say one thing before we read it. When I say to you, and you fill in the blanks, new and better, because we're Americans and because we live in a consumeristic society, your mind, when you think new and better, probably goes to products. And new and better, in your mind, might be a synonym for new and improved, Everything is new and improved, right? Nothing's old and classic anymore. It's all new and improved. So you go to the store and you go down the the cleaning supply aisle and they've got Windex. New and improved. And you say, well, that's what I need. I don't want the old Windex. Why would anybody buy the old Windex anymore? I want the new stuff, the best stuff. But you also know that in about a year, you're going to go to the store and they're going to say, Windex, new and improved. Even better. Or you're going to go to the, the shoe store and you're going to see, here's the Adidas section. I'm looking at these tennis shoes and it, new and improved Adidas. They're lighter. They fit your foot better. The laces, they lace up easier. They, they're just, they, they breathe. Your feet aren't going to sweat ever. These are new and improved. And we're just used to that with products. Cars come out. It's new. It's better than the last one. And we kind of get trained to just know that's the game, Right? with products and consumerism and advertising and all the rest. And we just sort of read the new and improved, and after a while, you realize they just want me to buy what they got. It's the same thing. They just put new and improved on the package, and I somehow think it's better. Or even if it is new and improved, you know and I know in six months it will be different. It will be newer and better and it's not ever going to end. And I just want to make sure you understand, when we say Jesus has established a new and a better covenant, that doesn't mean as consumers that we're going to latch on to this one until another one comes along. That's not what we're talking about. The author of Hebrews is saying God had established this covenant with his people, this old covenant. Now we have something new. It's better than that one. And his point throughout the book of Hebrews is that this is the true covenant we've been waiting for. This is the the relationship we've been longing for. This is the fullness of what God has been promising. There is not any other product coming along down the road, down the line, that's going to top this one. This is it. It's a new covenant, and it's a better covenant. So let's read through the text, and then we'll pray together. 
Hebrews 8 verse 1. The point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old covenant, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. What is becoming obsolete is growing old, and it's ready to vanish away. That's the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we have sung about the greatness and the glory of Jesus. We believe that he's unmatched, that he's unrivaled, he's unequaled. He's one of a kind. He is exactly who we need. Father, thank you for providing this high priest, the one that we needed, you provided him. Father, as we read through and as we think through this chapter in the book of Hebrews, give us eyes to see the truth. Give us hearts to love Jesus more than when we walked in this room this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I know you people. You like to argue. And I'm about to say some things to you. And some of you are going to want to come very much after the service and argue with me about some of the things that I'm about to say. Some of you would argue with a brick. And my wife would say, I'm one of those people, that I would just argue with a brick. And so I'm going to say some things to you. I'm going to set some things in front of you here this morning. And I'm just prefacing it all by saying, I don't want to argue with you later. You can just argue with yourself or go home and find a brick and argue with a brick or something. I'm pretty confident in the things that I'm about to say to you. Sometimes in life... One thing is just better than another thing. And you can argue and you can object and you can come up with all sorts of little, you know, cutesy things, but it's just true. Sometimes in life, one thing is better than another thing. I'm just going to give you a few examples of this. I don't think there's any debate on these things. Here's the first one. Number one, rock'em, sock'em robots. How many of you have ever done that, right? 
that does not qualify you to get in the ring and fight a heavyweight prize fight, right? You can say, well, I'm undefeated in Rock'em Sock'em Robots. It doesn't matter. There's no skill involved in that. It's just hitting a button over and over and over again, and then the head pops up. A prize fighter is better than the Rock'em Sock'em Robots. That's indisputable. One is just a cheap sort of plastic ripoff, and the other is a highly skilled athlete. One is just better than the other. Here's another example. You can have a big old stack of Monopoly money. It's not as good as a stack of $100 bills. Now look, we played Monopoly in my house the other night. When we play games, I play to win. I do not lose board games. I do not lose. I do not let my kids win. I do not have mercy on them. I had the whole board controlled. I had hotels all the way around. We played till the very last dollar got put in my pile. And I won. And I like winning at Monopoly. I win at Monopoly. But in that moment, if you would have said, do you want to hold on to your stack of Monopoly money or would you like this stack of $100 bills? That's an easy decision. Right? I'm suddenly very gracious to my children. I say, well, it's time that I let them win and have a, have a moral victory here somewhere. Real money is better than monopoly money. That's just the way it is. What about a house? Blueprints. Not as good as a house. They're important, right? If you want to end up with a house, you should start with a blueprint. You should make sure that whoever drew the blueprint knows what they're doing and everything's in the right place and it's the way you want it. But in the end, nobody goes out to the north side of Odessa or the east side of Odessa and goes into one of those offices and says, I'm in the market for blueprints. You go in and you say, I need a house. And they say, okay, well, here's where we start. But nobody leaves saying, these are the blueprints I've always wanted. These are my dream blueprints. And I'm going to take them to my old house and frame them and put them on the wall. That's not the point. The point is that the blueprint is pointing you to something greater. A house is better than blueprints. Now, don't throw rocks at me. Let me explain the next one because I'm going to change it up a little bit on you here, okay? I'm not saying the Cowboys are better than anybody here. That's not my point. Here's my point. Spring football games in Odessa are not as good as Friday Night Lights in November. Whoever you pull for, red or black, it doesn't matter. I mean, the spring game's fun. It's exciting. You haven't seen football in a long time, and the guys get out there, and they kind of run around. And, I mean, that's okay, but it's not as good as a real Friday Night Light football game in the fall. And there's Texas Stadium. Let me just say this. I'm a Cowboys fan. When we play in the preseason, if you're playing, you might as well try to win. But a preseason win is not as good as a Super Bowl win. And some of you are saying, the Cowboys win Super Bowls? How long? I mean, that's been a long time. Some of you have never seen that in your life, never experienced that. You don't know what I'm talking about, so you just have to take my word for it. The Cowboys winning the Super Bowl is better than winning a preseason football game. I mean, one's good. It's nice. It's okay. If you're going to play, you might as well try to win. But one is better. One last example of this. These are our summer interns. And uh, for VBS, we had them turned into cardboard cutouts. And they're waiting on you in the office if you want to go see them. They're both in there. These cardboard cutouts are good for really one thing and one thing only, and that's scaring you. And I've come in several times this week, and 
I've been the first one in, and I walk in this door, walk into the library, all the lights are off, and there's the alarm pad there in the library. And so I come around the corner to turn the alarm off, and somebody has moved, Jake or Anne Marie, right around that corner. I mean, cardboard cutout will scare you when you come around the corner. And cardboard cutouts are good for some things. It was fun to have these at VBS. We had a contest with the boys and the girls, and so we had Jake over here on the boys' side, and we had Anne Marie over here on the girls' side. I mean, they're good for something. But look, Jake's gone to youth camp. He wasn't here to lead worship. Cardboard cutout can't do that. It's not as good as the real Jake. If you know Anne Marie, you might prefer the cardboard cutout of Anne Marie to the real Anne Marie. I, I don't know. You get the point. Some things are just better than other things. That's basically the argument we've been building to in the book of Hebrews, and that's certainly the argument here in chapter 8. He's laid out all these reasons Jesus is the greatest. And then he comes to verse 1 and he says, look, let me, let me just tell you what the point of this is. This is why I'm telling you all this stuff about Jesus. He's the high priest that we need and we have him. We have exactly what we need. And he has ushered in a new and a better covenant. And the old may have some sentimentality to it, may have some memories to it, may have some beauty to it, may sort of be like that blueprint of a house, right? It's important, but it's not as great as what we have in Jesus. Jesus is all that we need. And this new covenant in Jesus is better than the old. Why would he want to make this argument? Whoever wrote this book, why would he feel the need to make this argument? The new is better than the old. Well, I think maybe in his mind he's thinking of Jewish Christians, the very first Jewish Christians. People who had grown up going to the temple. People who had grown up hearing about the, the old days of the tabernacle. People who had this worship experience in Jerusalem that was multi-sensory. There were sights and there was sounds and there was smells and there was things to watch and experience. And it was all sort of very visceral. And these people, all their lives for generations, have been trained to worship in this way. And now all of a sudden they're just supposed to gather in a room and sing to a guy that's in heaven and you can't see him anymore. And I think for some of these Jewish Christians, there would have been a temptation to say, man, Jesus isn't here. I don't see him. I can't touch him right now. At least when we were going to the temple, there was a, a sacrifice, and I carried it in my hands, and I watched the blood spill out on the altar, and I could smell the burnt offerings and all these things. Maybe they would say, I miss those things. I miss the experience of all that and the, the significance of that. And the author of Hebrews is trying to say to them in chapter 8 and 9 and 10, it's not better. Don't go backwards. Do not stop following after Jesus. Don't go back to the old when you have the new. So maybe he was thinking about the first Jewish Christians. Maybe the author of Hebrews is thinking about the first Gentile Christians. These would have been pagan peoples. 
all their life, they would have gone to pagan temples, and the worship would have taken a different form than it did in the temple in Jerusalem, but there still would have been a temple, and there still would have been priests there, and there still would have been sacrifices, and there still would have been all these external rituals. And I imagine there would have been a certain temptation for these first Gentile Christians to jump into following Jesus and to say, wow, there's a whole Old Testament we've missed out on. And they go back and they're working through the Old Testament and they say, oh, we, we're used to temples. We know about temples. We know about sacrifices and we know about priests. Let's, let's bring all of those things out in worship. And the author of Hebrews is saying, don't go backwards. Don't go backwards. The new that you have in Jesus is far, far better. It's perfect. It's everything you need. Do not go back to the old. And so the question becomes, why? Why is the new covenant so much better than the old? And in Hebrews 8, I think there's three answers. I just want to lay those out for you, and then we'll try to apply this to our lives. Why is the new better than the old? Number one, because Jesus offered a perfect sacrifice for sinners. What he did on our behalf was perfect. By implication, what we're saying is those old sacrifices were not perfect. They may have been animals without blemish, but they were not the perfect sacrifice that we need. Jesus has offered that sacrifice. Look at verse 3, Hebrews 8 verse 3. He says, every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. That's the point of the priesthood. Sacrifice is connected with the priesthood. They offer sacrifices for the people. And he says that's why it's necessary for the priest to have something to offer. they got to take a, a dove or they got to take a bull or they got to take a goat. You're the priest. Your job is to offer the sacrifice. So you take something with you in your hands. And what we're learning in the book of Hebrews is that Jesus didn't offer a sacrifice like one he carried in with his hands. He offered himself. It wasn't just the blood of bulls and goats that was being offered, but it was the blood of God's Son. The blood of the one who was truly God and truly human. This anchor for our souls offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. Look what we read in chapter 7, verse 27, if you just bump up. It's talking about Jesus. He says, he has no need, like the old high priest, to offer a daily sacrifice. First for his own sins and then for those of the people. He did it once for all when he offered himself. It doesn't need to be repeated over and over and over again. You, you don't need to do it over and over and over again like you did in the old covenant. It was one sacrifice once for all time and it was done because it was perfect. And the author of Hebrews says, you know it's perfect for two reasons. Number one, Jesus is now sitting down. Number two, he offered it in the true tent. And I just want you to see these in the text. Look at Hebrews 8.1. The point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated. And at that word, every self-respecting Jew who knew anything about the old covenant would have said, wait a minute, wait a minute. What do you mean Jesus is seated? High priests don't sit. God gave lots of instructions about the tabernacle. Lots of instructions about the temple. And he told them exactly what kind of furniture to put in there. They had a table. They had a lampstand. There was an altar. The ark was there. There was a curtain hanging in the middle. There was no chair. 
There was no bench. There was no couch. There was no employee lounge room over on the side of the temple. There's no sitting down when you're on duty at the temple or the tabernacle. You always stand because your work is never finished. And you offer the same sacrifices over and over and over again, day after day after day, month after month, year after year, generation after generation. You just hit it on repeat because the work is never done. Jesus didn't offer a sacrifice like they offered. He offered a perfect sacrifice. And once he offered it, he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. His work in offering this sacrifice is complete. It's one of the big differences between a Protestant church and a Roman Catholic church. Roman Catholics believe that in the celebration of the Mass, they are reliving in a very real way, not just a memorial way, but a very real way. There is a re-sacrifice of Jesus in the Mass. And Luther and Calvin and the rest of them came along and they said, no, 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 the book of Hebrews says that the sacrifice is done. And in the Lord's Supper, we're going to look back and remember that, but we're not redoing that sacrifice anymore. It was a perfect sacrifice, and Jesus is seated. Secondly, it's perfect because of the location. Look what he says in verse 3. He's a minister in the holy places in the true tent verse 2, the true tent, the one that the Lord set up, not man. He offered this sacrifice in the true tent. What's he talking about? Well, a Jew who was listening to this might have objected and said, you know, this idea that Jesus is a high priest is preposterous. Everyone knows that the sacrifices were not offered outside of Jerusalem. They were offered at the tabernacle. Everyone knows you didn't go outside of Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice. You offered it in the temple. You went to the temple mount, and that's where the sacrifice was offered. And they might have objected and said, Jesus clearly didn't do that. He didn't die in the right place. And the author of Hebrews comes alongside, alongside this, and he says something. Look, this is, kind of, this is kind of weird stuff for us to think about, but he says, you understand that that tent and the temple were only a copy and a shadow like, I know you could touch the fabric of that tent and it felt very real to you. And I know you could run your hand over the bricks of the temple and you could, I mean, they were solid. It was right there. It was very real. But the author of Hebrews says, that was just a copy and a shadow. Verse 5, those old priests, they're serving a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. And Jesus, when he was led outside of Jerusalem, up a hill, carrying his cross and crucified outside the city limits. He didn't die in the tabernacle. It wasn't a sacrifice offered at the temple. But it was a sacrifice offered in a spiritual way. This is what the author of Hebrews is saying. That is more real than the fabric of that tent. And is more real than the bricks that you could pound on at the temple. You couldn't see it. You didn't understand everything that was going on, but the sacrifice that he offered was offered in the true tent. And he talks about Moses. There's a quote in here in verse 7 from the Old Testament. See that you make everything according to the pattern, Moses. And the idea is that Moses got a glimpse of a spiritual realm that is more real than anything you and I have ever experienced in this world. And he made a tent 
that was a copy of what he saw. It was a, a shadow of what he saw. And Jesus didn't offer a sacrifice at that tent. He didn't offer it at the temple, but he offered it in the true tent. And you can say, well, I, I can't see that. I can't see it. That means it's not real. And the book of Hebrews says there are some things that you can't see that are very real. And faith isn't seeing, but it's believing in things that are unseen. And that sacrifice that he offered was more real in the true tent than any of the sacrifices, any of the animals brought to the tabernacle or brought to the temple for thousands of years. It was a perfect sacrifice. It was the spotless, sinless, righteous Son of God dying our death. The sacrifice that he offered was perfect. Don't go back to the old. The new is better. Secondly, Jesus is the culmination of redemptive history. He's the most important scene in the whole story. Until he comes along, you can't even make sense of the rest of it. He fills in all the blanks. He ties up all the loose ends. All the little previews and prophecies and pointers, they all find their fulfillment in him. Look at verse 7 and verse 8. He says, if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Look, if the old covenant could have saved you, we wouldn't have needed a new one. And he says in verse 8, he finds fault with them, with the old covenant, when he says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant. If the old covenant was so good, why did he promise a new one? If the old covenant was supposed to be the thing that saved you, why did he point his people forward and promise them something better in the new covenant? He's saying the fact that the old points you to the new tells you that the new is better. Look what he says in verse 13. The first one is obsolete. He's made a new covenant. The first one's obsolete. It's like your computer from 1994. Good luck booting that up and getting anything done. It's useless. It's obsolete. You just throw it away. What is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Why would you go back to it? Why would you go back to that old covenant and those old sacrifices and all of the things that you tried to do to earn this righteousness with the Lord? All those things were pointing you forward and the new has come. Don't go backwards. Why? Because Jesus is the, the culmination. He's the fulfillment of all of it. All of those old things were pointing you forward to Jesus. So just a, a silly human under, uh, illustration that might help us understand this. 2018, Marvel released a movie called Avengers Infinity War. A lot of you saw it. I know that because the movie made $2 billion. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money for a movie with a lousy ending. I hate to spoil it for you. You've had a lot of time to go see it, so I'm just going to spoil it for you. Ending is terrible. You think they're going to win, and then they lose, and then they roll the credits, and you wait, and you're like, oh, no, 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 something else has got to happen. No, that's it. Good guys lose. Movie's over. Lots of people die. Billions of dollars this movie made. Why? Because everybody knew that's not the real end. Everybody knew from the time this one even came out, there's going to be another one. 
They're not going to leave us hanging here. So we're going to pay lots of money to go see this one. And then a year later, we're going to pay even more money to go see the next one. And the next one was Endgame. And it came out. It's made $2.8 billion. Why would people pay $2.8 billion to go see a movie after the first one had such a lousy ending? It's because you say, that wasn't the real ending. It was pointing us forward. We're waiting for this final movie that's going to take all the loose ends and tie them up. And it's going to take all these characters and all these dozens of movies we've been paying to see. And they're all going to be there together and we're going to have some final resolution to the story. The author of Hebrews never sat in a synergy with his feet propped up in a bucket of popcorn watching Avengers. But that's the same argument that he's making here. Like You read all these stories from the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and there's Adam and there's Noah and there's Abraham and David and Isaiah and Jeremiah and all these guys. And then you're just sort of left hanging like, that's it? They get kicked out of the land and then a few of them come back at the end of the story and it doesn't look like God's really happy with them at all. And that's the end of the story? That's it? It's a 400-year cliffhanger. You had to wait a year for Avengers. 400 years. And then the final chapter came. And the author of Hebrews says, why would you go back and trust in the old when you have the new? You have the culmination of the whole story. Everything that was promised in the old has been fulfilled in Jesus. Don't go backwards. Number three, Jesus alone is able to save his people. Why is the new so much better? This is the most important reason. Jesus alone is able to save his people. And this is where the author of Hebrews quotes Jeremiah. So we read Jeremiah earlier. We read the author of Hebrews quote Jeremiah. Some of you are sitting out there saying, I don't know who Jeremiah is. So let me just fill you in on Jeremiah. Jeremiah lived in the Old Covenant at the very end of the history of Israel. He was a prophet called by the Lord from before he was born to be a prophet, to speak his words. And Jeremiah experienced the worst moment in the history of Israel. He experienced the moment when God's people got kicked out of the promised land and sent into exile. Finally, lastly, once and for all. It had been promised. It had been warned about. There was a preview. When Israel got kicked out of the land, Jeremiah experienced the last big cataclysmic event. God's people did not keep the terms of the covenant. They did not live up to their end of the bargain. And so God sent them into exile. He kicked them out of his presence. And the quote from Jeremiah talks about that. It says, I made a covenant with their fathers. I took them out of the land of Egypt. They did not continue in it. I kept up my end of the deal. They did not keep up their end of the deal. And the result is, the end of verse 9, I showed no concern for them. When the Babylonians marched against Jerusalem, I actually sent them. I didn't just let it happen. I sent them into exile. And Jeremiah lived that. And he went with the people. And he saw the horrors of siege. He saw the the horrors of exile. And he had hope that God's people would come back to the land. He knew that that would happen someday. But Jeremiah knew, even if we get out of exile and we go back to the land... When we go back, we take our sinful hearts with us. And God can take the chains off of our wrists in exile, but something's got to be done with the 
the stony heart in my chest. Because if he doesn't do something different, something new, something better, this same thing is going to play out over and over and over and over again. And so Jeremiah, speaking for the Lord, speaks to the people and he says, there's something new coming. It's not going to be like the old, it's going to be different, it's going to be better. And he describes it in verse 8 and 9 and 10 and 11 and 12. And I just want you to see some of the features of this new covenant. Why is it so much better? How is it that Jesus saves his people? Number one, there's going to be inward change. Look at verse 10. I'm going to put their law, uh, I'm going to put my law into their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I'm not going to give them tablets of stone. I'm not going to give them more external rules, but I'm going to do something on the inside. I'm going to change them from the inside working out. It's going to be an inward change. There's going to be genuine relationship. Verse 10, I will be their God and they will be my people. I will be their God and they will be my people. The Lord consistently claimed Israel as his people, but they rarely claimed Yahweh as their God. They claimed Baal and they claimed Asherah and they claimed Molech and they claimed Chemosh and all the rest. And God says in the, in the new covenant, it's going to be different. They are going to be my people like they've always been. And I'm going to be their God. They're not going to have other gods. It's going to be a genuine relationship between me and my people. Verse 11, there will be superior knowledge. He says they're not going to teach their neighbor or their brother saying, know the Lord. What Jeremiah is saying is, look, in ancient Israel, it was always a mixed company. There were people in the nation who trusted Yahweh, and there were people who didn't. And those who trusted the Yahweh, like the prophets, were always looking around saying, hey, trust the Lord. Know the Lord. Don't, don't follow Baal. Don't follow these other gods. Know the Lord. And Jeremiah says, in the new covenant, it's going to be different. Because everyone who's in the covenant community is going to know me, from the least to the greatest. It's going to be a superior knowledge. There's going to be true forgiveness. Look at verse 12. I'll be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. What an amazing thought. What a beautiful gospel promise that the God who knows everything from the beginning to the end says, I'm going to not remember your iniquities and I'm going to be merciful to you. Why? Because a sacrifice is going to be offered. A perfect sacrifice. Not just that I'm going to sweep your iniquities under the, the cosmic rug of history and forget they're there. I'm not going to remember them and I'm not going to count them against you because I'm going to count them paid by the perfect sacrifice offered by Jesus. Look, in this new covenant, what Jeremiah is talking about and what the author of Hebrews is talking about, it's way better than God just sort of teeing it up for us and then saying, all right, now it's all up to you. This is God doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. I read these promises from Jeremiah, I read them in Hebrews 8, and I'm mindful of what the great church father Augustine said. He described the new covenant with these words, O Lord, command what you will and give what you command. Lord, you command us to turn from sin. Command it, and then we need you to work repentance in us because we can't do it ourselves. You command it, and then you give it. Lord, you command us to believe in you, to have faith in you. 
command that. That's good. But then we need you to work it in us because we can't muster it up ourselves. Lord, you command us to follow after Jesus and to trust into Jesus and to not turn away from Jesus. Command it. That's a good thing. But then you're going to have to work that in us because we certainly can't work it in ourselves. Command what you will. And then please, Lord, give what you command. That's the hope of the new covenant. When God gives these promises through Jeremiah and through the the author of Hebrews, he's not saying, I'm going to make it easier for you to come through on your end of the bargain. He's saying, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to write it on your heart. And I'm going to forgive your iniquities. And I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. All of these things will be certainly true and I'm going to take decisive action to make sure that they happen. And the question when you come to the end of Hebrews 8 is this. What will you hope in when you stand before the Lord? What are you going to hope in? What will your confidence rest upon? For the original audience, these first Jewish Christians, they had a very real decision to make. Are you going to trust in all the external ritual of the old... Is that what your hope is going to be in? Are you going to trust in Jesus, the great high priest? The old is gone. It's passing away. It's obsolete. What are you going to trust in? For these first Gentile Christians, people who had come out of pagan worship, people familiar with with all the sights and smells and sounds of a, a pagan temple and the priesthood and all the rest, are you going to go back to that kind of stuff, the old Or are you going to cling to Jesus and follow Jesus? What about you and me? When you stand before the Lord, what will your hope rest upon? For some, it will rest upon, well, I went to such and such church and the name was right out there on the sign and that was the right church to be at. And when we came into the building, we did all of the right things. We didn't sacrifice goats and bulls and you know, throw blood on the Ark of the Covenant, but we sang all the right songs and I filled in all the blind. I did all the right stuff. You can trust in that. That can be your confidence. Some of you would say, well, my confidence is just going to be that I'm a pretty good person, pretty nice person. I'm pretty moral. I try to be fair. I try to be honest. I try to, to be kind to others. Some of you say, well, I'm going to trust in the fact that I've prayed a certain prayer or I had a religious experience. This one time way back in my life, I was at this place and the guy was talking and the music was this and I I had this feeling and this emotion and this experience. You can trust in all those things or you can trust in Jesus. And the author of Hebrews is teeing it up for you and he says, look, here's the point. Here's the point. Let me just boil it down for you. You're sinful people. You need a savior. The old covenant will not save you. That old stuff, do not go back to that. Here's the point. We have Jesus. We have him. You don't have to risk your eternity on your own goodness and your own morality. You don't have to risk your eternity on, well, I was a member of Emmanuel Baptist Church. You don't have to risk your eternity on, well, I had this experience at a camp one time. Let it rest on Jesus. We have him. This great high priest, he ushered in through his death and his resurrection a new covenant and a better covenant. He offered a perfect sacrifice. He's the culmination of everything that God's people have been waiting for. He can save you. And we have him. 
What will you hope in? Let's pray.